Brothers and sisters, let's take uh, an opportunity as we come before God's word to prepare our hearts. And one of the ways is by actually opening up his word to Judges chapter 7. This morning you are going to hear uh, a sermon about when good people go bad. Happen with any of us, right? But this is definitely a story about us as we look at Judges chapters 7, 8, and 9. We're going to be reading particularly chapter 7. So if you are able for an extended amount of time to be able to stand for God's reading, I invite you to do so from Judges chapter 7. Please stand for his reading. And before we read, let us pray for God's mercy. Lord, we know that you are the one who speaks to us through your word, by your spirit, in such a way that our lives are changed. Lord, we long for it this morning as we turn to the pages of Judges chapter 7. Transform us and renew us by your spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The word of Christ speaks to us like this. Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, This one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue, as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands up to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 who lapped, I will save and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he set all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down to the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant. 
You shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands will be strengthened to go against the camp. Then he went down with Purah, his, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the other people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. His hand, Midian, and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all are with me. Then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp and shout, For the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the, the Lord had set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. Army, And the army fled as far as Beth Shittish toward Zerath, as far as the border of Abel Mahalah by Tabith. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Gideon sent mass messengers through all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them, as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they captured the waters as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. And they captured the two prince, princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you read this week, not only chapter 7, but read chapter 8 and 9, you will find that chapter 7 
is quite PG when it comes to how things played out. If you read chapters 8 and 9, you would probably children to read along with you. For it's a different tale. And honestly, you get uh, different pictures of the man named Gideon. And maybe you have even had this own experience in your own life where you have really looked up to somebody, maybe somebody in the church, and wishing that you could be as spiritually mature as that man or that woman. They're kind of like these giants, spiritual giants in the faith. Oh, to be like that man. Oh, to be like that woman. Only to find yourself later on crushed with disappointment when you hear that they have let you down badly. It's the same experience when you, you hear about maybe a church treasurer or a secretary that everybody who has trusted who, as it turns out, is giving just a little bit of money off the top for their own reasons. Or maybe it's your own experience when you have found out that a pastor that you have so dearly loved is found to be living a double life. And so what do you do with how do you keep from becoming judgmental or maybe disillusioned? What do you do when over and over it seems like people who are spiritually alive, spiritual giants, maybe even powerfully used by God in a season of their life, are found to be less than what you thought? There's a story in the Bible to answer this. And more importantly, it's also going to help us reflect on something that is absolutely critical for our own failures. Because, my friends, we need to be honest, we fail just like Gideon. So this morning we are going to be looking at, if you will, a, a case study and ask how do we handle when a good person goes bad. The first thing is we are going to look at Gideon the good. Gideon the good. It's kind of like a, uh, an old English kind of story. Gideon the good. Later we're going to look at Gideon the, the bad. But first let's look at Gideon the good. So we've been looking at this book of Judges for, uh, this is our sixth week in this series. And today we're, we're continuing looking at this story of Gideon. And if you know the story, I think you would agree that by almost any standard, Gideon is a good man. He's a good man. Out of all the judges in this book, God is most visible in the story of his life. Out of every judge, it is only to Gideon that even an angel shows up before him. It's the longest story that we have in the book of Judges, which speaks maybe to even its importance. As well, Gideon wins a resounding victory with how many men? 300. So centuries later, even the writer of the book of Hebrews gave Gideon as an example of someone who, through faith, conquered kingdoms. Even later in our time, we have the Gideons. The Gideons, a, a Bible society that named itself after this man. So it's almost, almost all good. And of course, Gideon was in no way perfect. No way. And if you were here last week, you would remember that Gideon didn't even start out all that well. 
When we first met him, he was hiding. He was scared. He was hiding in a wine press because he was scared of these Midianites, which God had already promised to give into the hands of Israel. And when the angel of the Lord appears to him and says, listen, he will save Israel by your hand, he came up with almost every reason in the book why he was not the man. Does that sound like any of us? Man, I could give you a hundred reasons why God shouldn't use me. But this almost makes Gideon more real and more human. It helps us appreciate that Gideon was an ordinary person like you and me. And we appreciate his flaws in a way because it helps us to relate. We are afraid. We're fearful. We wonder, can God really use me? But I'm, I'm pretty weak. This is a big task. But when God, God accomplished something unbelievable through him, and do you remember how, how scared Gideon was? You would expect God to make allowances for Gideon get, giving into his fear. God going, oh, I get it, Gideon. I get it. Gideon was afraid of these 135,000 warriors who were all lined up for battle against him. And quite frankly, who wouldn't be? 135,000. I, I think I, I myself would find myself scared as well. And the text even describes how many it felt like to Gideon. It said, the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. They were there in the swarms. And on top of that, there's even this, their camels were without number. So Gideon and his army were up on the mountain looking down at this valley, and they were seeing, we are outnumbered. They were there in the swarms. And then there's even that language at the end of verse 12. They were as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. Gideon had every good reason to be afraid. Because Gideon was vastly outnumbered. Gideon only had 32,000 warriors. He was outnumbered. Four to one. Those are bad odds. But what else did God do? God told Gideon that, listen, Gideon, you have way too many warriors. Could you imagine the reaction when he hears that? Hold on. We're already outnumbered, and you are telling me that I have too many warriors? God asked Gideon to dismiss anyone in the army who was afraid. Did you notice how many people left in that moment? Of the 32,000 that were there, how many left? 22,000. 22,000. They are going, I don't want any part of this. Do you see how many there are out there? They're like the sand on the seashore when it comes to the abundance of them. I'm out of this. And then, so now he's down to 10,000 warriors. He is now 14 to 1. 
It was four to one. Now it's 14 to one. And if Gideon was afraid before now, he should absolutely be petrified, scared to death. It is a sure sentence of death. But God wasn't done even then. God said that Gideon still had way too many people. Could you start doing the math, you know, with Gideon? And you're going, what do you mean? God devised a plan that resulted in a further reduction of Gideon's army, his strength. And Gideon ended up sending everyone but 300 people away. Gideon is down to less than 1% of the warriors that he started with. Less than 1%. He is now outnumbered 450 to 1. Who takes those kind of odds? Why would God do this? Well, Judges chapter 7, verse 2 tells us why. God said, the people you are, uh, with the people you are, too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved. God is making a point. And one of the greatest dangers that we face is that if God uses us, or if God grants us success, one of the things that we tend to do is to actually take credit for what God has done. So if picture your Gideon, remember that he was absolutely terrified. God takes someone who is scared, someone who is compared in the next chapter, or actually in this chapter, as to be a barley loaf, which is plain, and it is tasteless, and it is bland. And God takes what meager resources he had, and he strips them away, leaving him with practically nothing. And as far as we know, God did not even give him a battle plan. God just left him out there with this assurance, with a promise that everything would work out. Isn't that how God works? Listen, I'm not going to give you everything that you need, but I'm giving you my promise. An assurance that I am faithful. I am good to my word. And what happens next is absolutely brilliant. I don't know how Gideon came up with the idea, but he knew that if he, if he had each of his 300 soldiers act like army officers, the Midianites may get confused and think that there's a massive army rather than just 300 regular guys. And ordinarily, only army officers used trumpets at that time to give out directions. And the plan worked. 300 guys blew. And the Midianites thought that behind each set of trumpets was a massive number of troops. And they panicked. And ultimately, they didn't just run for the hills. What did they do? In their panic, God created such confusion that they attacked one another. Gideon's plan worked. It shouldn't have, but it did. But it gets even better. Gideon had a face down, uh, 
had to face down an, an additional problem. And if you read chapter 8, you're going to see that one of the tribes of Israel, the, the Ephraimites, complained that they had been kind of left out of this battle. They killed two of the Midianite leaders, but they had been part of the battle, the victory. And Gideon just defeated his enemies. He they had this victorious moment. I am sure that the adrenaline is just pumping through his body. body. And what does he immediately have to confront? Complainers. Isn't that often the way it is? Where it's like, oh, this is such a great thing. And then all of a sudden somebody goes, but I was not part of it. What about me? They're your Debbie Downers. They kind of deflate the balloon. So how was Gideon going to handle this, this challenge? And his response, my friends, was brilliant. If you look at uh, Judges 8, verse 2, this is how he, he talks them down from their, their anger and their, their resentment. And he gives them an incredibly diplomatic kind of answer. In, in verse 2, it says, what have I done now in comparison with you? What have I done? It's not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim. That's who he's talking to. It's not your gleaning. It's not your harvest in Ephraim so much better than the grape harvest of Abizar, which is his. In other words, you guys are so much better than us. In, in other words, listen, you, you accomplished so much more than he did. Not only is Gideon a great warrior, he is also a diplomat who refuses, diffuses the tensions against his people. And, and if you think about Proverbs, verse 15. Proverbs 15, verse 1 says this. A soft answer turns away wrath. Right? A soft answer. But a harsh word, what does it do? It stirs up anger. So Gideon was a sharp guy. He knew that if he came out with guns a-blazing against these Ephraimites, it would have only stirred up more anger. So what did he do? He, he threw a compliment their, their way and just said, guys, look at what you've done. Compared to me, I've done nothing. A great diplomat. Notice, notice Gideon's, uh, even his humility when dealing with verse 22. The people saw how powerfully God was using Gideon. And they ultimately even asked him a question. Rule over us. We want you to rule over us. You, your son, and your grandson also. For you have saved us from the hand of Midian. They noticed God's hand on Midian. And who wouldn't want this guy to be their leader? But notice, he gives a great example of humility. And he replied, just as he should, I will not rule over you. And, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Oh, great humility, right? Gideon understood that becoming a king would take away too much credit from, from God. It would replace the... So Gideon did exactly the right thing and encouraged the people to trust their God. 
And you should all read this. And you, you can't, as you read this, find yourself admiring Gideon. Oh, to be a Gideon. He was someone that God chose to use in a powerful way. He was smart. He was victorious. He was diplomatic. And he was even humble. Where do you find that in leaders today, right? Humility. And one Old Testament scholar has gone. He identified 20 admirable things about Gideon in this story. 20 great things. He listed, he's listed in Hebrews 11 as a hero of the faith who through faith conquered kingdoms. So I'm going to tell you, I would not hesitate in choosing a Gideon to serve as an elder of Missio Dei Church. I'd be looking at it going, yeah, he stepped out in faith. There's great, God's hand is on him. And what's there not to like? He's like many of the other people that we look up to. He's, he's got my, my list. They're smart. They're profound. They have a close relationship with God. They, I, I look up to him. It's easy to look at these people like Gideon and wish that we could be like him. Oh, to be a Gideon. But I wish I could just stop right there. But there's a tough reality that we need to confront. It's the reality about Gideon. It's also about the people that we look up to. If you're completely honest, then you're also going to rea realize it's a reality about you. We, we need to look at the other side of Gideon's life because the picture that I've given you so far is accurate, but it is not the whole picture. There's the public life, and then there's the private life, what really kind of is bubbling up underneath. It never is just the whole picture that we see. There's often a, a dark side, and we see a dark side to Gideon. And just as there is in all of us, in you and me, there's also a dark side. And if we don't face up to it, we are going to find ourselves continually surprised when seemingly good and godly people let us down. So we've been talking about Gideon the good. But let's now talk about Gideon the, the bad. And I wish it could end just at Judges 8, verse 3. Because we could avoid the brutal truth about Gideon, and we could avoid the brutal truth about ourselves. We could end with Gideon as just being a saint, somebody to admire, someone to emulate. We could avoid the hard truth that Gideon was both at the same time a sinner and a saint. The reality is he was a terrible sinner as well. Just when you think that Israel finally has a good and righteous judge, things again start to fall apart. For the very first time, it wasn't the Canaanites who led Israel into idolatry. It was actually Gideon, their judge. For the very first time, the people began to backslide during the tenure of a judge. Look at how bad things get in chapters 8 and 9. When Gideon crossed the, the Jordan and asked for bread for the Israelites in the cities of Succoth and Peniel, they were rudely turned down by their fellow brothers. They were turned down. And this time, Gideon was not diplomatic. He lashed out, to, out at them and threatened to get 
revenge. Later, he came back and he tore the flesh of the townspeople of the first city with thorns and briars. What kind of a leader is that? And then he went to the next city and he tore down the tower which killed the men of that city. He was on a vendetta of revenge, killing his own people. And then also Gideon had two Midianite kings captured. He decides that these guys have got to be killed. But we discovered the reason behind wanting these kings to be killed. And if you read it, you know that he wants them to be killed as a payback for killing his own brothers. He was angry. He doesn't want, and on top of that, he doesn't want to just kill them himself. It's the strangest thing. He asks. He said to his firstborn, Jether, rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a young man. In the Hebrew, the word young man describes anybody from somebody who is still nursing to a late adolescent. So figure that's like me asking my son Isaac to come and kill two kings. Gideon was on a personal vendetta. But do you also remember how Gideon turned down the kingship? This was good. He ultimately said, yeah, serve God. God should be your king. But his behavior afterward was bad. Even though he turned down the kingship, he started acting like a king. He did not take a crown for himself, but he started acting as if he had a crown. He took earrings from all of the plundered, and he made a golden ephod wearing, weighing some 40 pounds. And an ephod was something that a priest, a leader, would wear. And he made his home the religious center. And verse 27 of chapter 8 says this, And all Israel whored after it. And it became a snare to Gideon and his family. He may, may not have been a king in name, but he took all the privileges of kingship and led the people into idolatry. That's not it, though. When Gideon died, his legacy was brutal. One of Gideon's sons set himself up as king, the first king, really, of Israel, and murdered his 70 brothers so that there was no threat. Do you see how it's going from bad to really worse? And under this son Abimelech, there were all kinds of senseless bloodshed. For example, they set, a, set fire to a tower with a thousand people inside. Read chapter 9 sometime. It's a brutal chapter, and, and, and the slaughter and all the senseless destruction is Gideon's legacy. And at the end of the chapter, God ultimately de delivers Israel, but this time, 
not from foreign oppression. God delivers Israel by ending the life of one of Israel's leader. Israel needed to be saved from itself, not just outside forces. Gideon needed to be, Israel needed to be saved from itself. So even Gideon's finest moment, you're left wondering a little bit. And you're going, re remember where, where all of Gideon's soldiers, what they yelled as they charged down to the enemy? A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Why, why did they include Gideon's name? And you can make the case merely that he was just a human instrument that God was using and that it was appropriate to use his name there. And, and I, honestly, I could buy that. But you would really have to wonder if already Gideon was getting a little too big for his britches, taking a little too much credit for what was happening. And it's ironic that God whittled down his army to 300 so that they couldn't take any possible credit for the victory. And so he would, so he would have to get the victory. But ironically, this may have led to even greater pride. Gideon could brag about this great victory with so little resources. Isn't that what we do? I had so little, but look at what happened. Look at what I did. What was meant to bring God greater glory may have, in fact, been twisted by one of God's people so that it led to Gideon taking credit. But you're left with a troubling picture. Gideon has all these great qualities who has been powerfully used by God, but he becomes a self-serving leader and who is vengeful and who leads even Israel into idolatry. And then the, the after effects are absolutely brutal. All of this has led Daniel Block, that biblical Old Testament scholar, to write a paper called, Will the Real Gideon Stand Up? He listed those 20 admirable uh, characteristics about Gideon in the story, but he also listed 16 questionable elements in this story as well. Daniel Block said this, the greatest threats to Israel does not come from outside enemies who may occasionally oppress Israel. Israel's most serious enemy is within. She is a nation that appears determined to destroy herself. And that is our story. It's so easy to blame the politicians, isn't it? It's so easy to blame this person or that person or that family member or that group over there. Man, it's easy to blame, but often the real problem is ultimately ourselves. Oh, if we would just slow down and examine our own heart and see how we are destroying ourselves from the inside out. So what do we make of this? How is it possible to both be a mighty warrior, somebody who is greatly used by God, and at the same time to be egotistical, vengeful, and even idolatrous? Is Gideon a hero or a villain? So this is what we learn. We learn this. 
What this passage reveals for us is something that will help us as we struggle with other leaders who let us down. And what's more, it will help us as we look even within our own hearts and realize that we're not all different, all that different from Gideon himself. You and I need to admit we are very much like Gideon. The thing that will help us the most is, is looking at that, that very famous reformer by the name of Martin Luther and what he has taught us. Martin Luther was a Catholic monk who was very concerned about the abuses and the teachings that he saw taking place at the church during his time. And one of the phrases that Luther developed is summarized in a Latin phrase. Simul justus et peccator. Simul justus et peccator. It means at the same time, Righteous and a sinner. In other words, those who trust in Christ are justified, declared righteous before God. We are counted righteous in God's eyes because of the work of Jesus Christ. But at the same time, we are sinners. We are sinners. God begins to transform us, but we, my friends, are all a work in progress. I am a work in progress. So are you. You are a work in progress. At the very time as we stand righteous before God and assured of our, our eternal glory that we will share in heaven, the new heavens and new earth, we will stand on that day. But we also know that we will continue until that day to struggle. So at the very same moment, we're both justified and we're sinners at the same time. And this is not a condition that will ever be transcended in this lifetime. It has led Tim Keller to say this. You can throw it up there, Carol. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared, dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Christ Jesus Christ than we ever, ever dared to hope. Think about that. What that means, the reality is that we're, we're, sinful, we're sinful enough that we, we can't even do good things. When we, when we really understand the gospel, we understand that at the very same moment we are weaker and more sinful than we ever believed, but we are also so greatly loved and accepted that we ever dared to hope. At the same time, and a sinner. And what this means is that we should never think too highly of anyone. That includes your children, your spouse, your, your elders, your deacons, your pastor. You should not think too highly of us. Because in the end, the best of us is just like Gideon. We may be greatly used by God. We may be called to 
to be involved in his work in particular ways. We may win great victories. We may, be, may appear to be spiritual giants, but we are never that far away from completely blowing it. We're one moment. George Whitfield, the great famous preacher who died, uh, who lived and died in the 1700s, wrote this. I cannot pray, but I sin. I cannot preach to you or any others, but I sin. I cannot do, I can do nothing without sin. And as one expresses it, my repentance wants to be repented of. Even his best repentance needs to be repented of. Because it probably hasn't gone far enough. And my tears to be washed in the precious blood of my Redeemer. Our best duties are so, are as so many splendid sins. George Whitfield said that even our repenting needs to be repented of. We should never be surprised by our, we should never pin our hopes, my friends, never pin our hopes on people. Hear that? Don't, please don't ever pin your hopes on me. Please? I plead, don't pin your hopes on me. Or whoever might be the next pastor of Miss Day. Please, don't ever pin your hopes on people. Because even the most godly people will let you down. Even the hymnist who, who penned that famous hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, nailed it when he said, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Or, or the famous uh, Baptist preacher, uh, by the name of Charles Spurgeon said this, For my own part, I desire constantly to stand at the foot of the cross with no other testimony concerning myself than this. I, the chief of sinners, am, but Jesus died for me. So what do we do with this knowledge that even at our best, we are still unprofitable servants? When we, when we understand that we are, like Gideon, both righteous and sinners. What do we do with that? How do we handle that? Well, there's only one thing, my friends, that we can do. If we believe that we are saved by grace, through faith, through the substitutionary work of Christ alone, that we are sinners in ourselves and completely accepted in Christ, we will understand that we are sinners, but we are infinitely loved sinners. We are as loved now as we will be a million years from now. And this gives us the freedom to see sin everywhere in our lives. And I begin to realize that you, we begin to realize that we are sinners, just like Gideon, because when we understand this, that we are unconditionally accepted based on the work of Christ alone, we don't have to be in denial of our sins. And shouldn't that help our friendships and our marriages? 
when we understand that we are unconditionally accepted by the work of Christ alone, we don't have to deny our sins. We don't have to come across and say, I, I got it all together. We can face the truth that we are just like Gideon. And there's only one way to respond. And what do we do about this? Well, when Martin Luther wrote his 95 Theses, the document that started the Protestant Reformation, his first point was this. When, the Lord, when our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. The entire life of believers to be one of repentance. The entire life of believers is to be one of continually being aware of the sin in our life, both little, small, hidden, public, and being repentant. Listen, if we really believe that we are weaker and more sinful than we ever dreamed, but more loved than we ever hoped, what could happen if we actually believed that? We would actually repent. My greatest prayer is that we would see the, this truth about ourselves like never before. And that our entire lives, the entire life of this church, would be marked by joyful repentance. Willing repentance. That when a brother or sister approaches you and she says, hey, I was greatly hurt by your word or your deed or even lack of action. Instead of getting defensive and prickly, we quickly realize, yeah, that is true. Would you forgive me? Lord, I repent of my will. I'm turning and returning to you. So my friends, that is our hope. That even though we are Gideon, that we recognize who we are in Christ. Amen?